Psalm 73. You'll notice at the very top that this is a psalm of Asaph. As far as we know, he probably was part of the musical group, a song a choir leader even, in the temple of his day. Uh, I even read someplace where he might have, the mu- music that he played was the cymbals. So he was a musician. He's the one who wrote this particular psalm. Most psalms by David. This is by a fellow named Asaph. And we need to understand what he was going through and learn from him this morning. I'm going to read to you the first 12 verses of Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. When we read a book or see a film that's of a dramatic character, uh, a mystery, a western, a um, other kinds of, of, of that genre, we have an adventure story being told. And through most of the story, the bad guys are winning. The villains are getting away with their task. But we plot on through the book. We continue to watch the film because we're pretty sure that before the film ends, before the book ends, well, the bad guys are not going to win. But that's fiction. What about reality? In reality, let's face it, the bad guys almost always seem to be winning. It's a timeless perplexity. Why do the wicked so frequently prosper and the righteous so frequently suffer? Why do so many non-Christians seem to go through life and they have quite a number of wonderful things and many Christians suffer for their faith and for other reasons? Why are anti-Christian things being raised to an alarming degree against Christianity, against the church, against the Bible? Why do you have particular problems with your unbelieving neighbor who seems to be driving a better car, has a better job, better yard, things just seem to be better for him while you're struggling with your own problems. How often the bad guys seem to win. And that brings us then to Asaph, a man who faced similar problems. Remember, he's writing this about a thousand years or so before Christ. We are now in 2020, Yet as we look at some of these things, you're going to notice why this is what it's like now. 
the bad guys are still winning. How do we handle this? How did Asaph handle this? Well, the psalm does begin on a positive note of praise. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. One of the things we admire about our Lord is His goodness. God is a good God. We are bad people, born bad people, and even though we're converted, we still do a lot of bad things, but God is pure good. And Asaph acknowledges that, but look what the first word is in the second verse. But, oh, what's, what's he going to say here? Well, as for me, my feet are almost stumbled, my steps are nearly slipped. I almost missed focusing upon the goodness of God. I almost missed it. And why did he almost miss it? Because of what I call his baffling bewilderment as he looked out upon the society of his day. My feet had I almost stumbled, I had nearly slipped. Then beginning at verse 3, he opens up about this baffling bewilderment, this perplexity he has, and he leads us to the very brink of his own despair over that particular problem. Asaph is saying, I can't figure life out. Why is it that the bad guys always seem to win? And then as we continue now for the next several verses that I read for you, I'm going to summarize them very briefly as we go through here, uh, you'll understand his perplexity. Remember now, we're speaking very generally, very generally here. So, beginning at verse 3, what does he say? Well, the wicked are prosperous. You can just kind of glance down each verse or verses as I refer to them. Look at her, very prosperous. In verse 4, they seem to be so healthy and so strong. Verse 5, they don't seem to have the troublesome responsibilities that I have. Verses 6 and 7, because of this, they become very arrogant, and at times very violent. Verses 8 and 9, Talk about scoffing and shooting off their mouths. They do that not only to, toward earth, but also toward heaven. Verses 10 and 11. And the thing is, they're so popularly received and acclaimed. And they enjoy even blaspheming God himself. Who needs him? And in verse 12, they always seem to be at ease. They always seem to have Lots of money, always wealthy. They seem to swagger through life with no major problems. The bad guys often seem to win. Let me mention some groups that probably you would agree are like this. Hollywood movie stars. Sports figures, celebrities. Business CEOs. And of course, politicians. Talk about the bad guys always seeming to win. In politics, it just seems to go on and on. Their eyes sparkle. Everything seems to be going well with them. They seem to enjoy greater freedom of movement and speech. They seem not to suffer the frailties and adversities and toilsome labor among many. They seem to rise above our daily frustrations they always seem to be winning. They scheme. They live lawlessly. 
They disregard the rights of others. They live at their expense. They boast. They threaten. They intimidate. They revile. And so, as Asaph, so we, with him, stare with some incomprehension that why is this happening this way? Why do the bad guys almost always seem to win? Now, he gives a little response there in verse 13 because he's revealing the fact that these taunts by the bad guys were galling. They were hard to swallow. They were frustrating. So he expresses that in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What have I gained by trying to obey the things of God? What have I gained by trying to live a holy life? It seems like I'm gaining nothing. It's vain. Have I been stupid to play by the rules? And verse 14, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. This was a daily thing on his heart and his mind. This problem with the bad guys always winning. The wicked prospering. The righteous suffering. And then at verse 15 he has a related concern. As you read it in the English language, it's kind of hard to figure out what he's saying. Let me see if I can help you with that. Asaph says, in verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, that is, I will speak to other people about how I feel, I think that's what he's saying here, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would be passing on to the next generation my frustrations. I don't think that is a very good idea. I don't want to do that. The thought of scandalizing his family, the family of God in general, was hard to bear. So there Asaph is, outwardly, seemingly holding it together, and yet really bothered, bewildered by this predicament. Surely we can identify with him, can't we? But thus far we've only seen the negative side of Psalm 73. That's very negative, isn't it? We must recognize, however, that there's more to the psalm than the first 16 or so, 15 verses. Actually, the last verses were written with an awareness of those first verses. So after sharing the things which perplex his soul, Asaph, at verse 17 in particular, introduced by verse 16, comes up with a little different approach. Verse 16. When I thought, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Struggling with this. Then notice the first word in verse 17. What is it? Until. What does until mean? Well, it means up to this point, but no further. Yes, I had this problem, this bewilderment, this perplexity with why the bad guys always seem to win. Until. Something happened. Two things. Verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, which would be mainly, in his day, the temple. Now, he's not saying 
simply, well, because I went to church one time, and that kind of cleared everything up. It's not what he's saying. He's saying something like this. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, the presence of God, began to think about God, who he is, what he can do, his sovereignty, his plan, his purposes. Until I did that, then things began to change for me. I began to understand that in the sanctuary, God has certain laws. His law is read. It's the divine school where his holy word was taught by his servants and illuminated by his spirit. So his mind entered into the eternity where God dwells. He left the things of sense which he could see in his own physical life. And he began to remember that there's other reality, which I preached on a few weeks ago, the more reality of the, the, the more real invisible world, which is also there. We've all used binoculars at one time or another. Sometimes somebody will hand a pair of binoculars to me and say, here, you want to look at this? And so I take it and I look through it. It's pretty blurry. So what do I have to do? I have to adjust it a little bit. And all of a sudden, boom, there it is in clarity, the object that my friend asked me to look at. Asaph's vision was rather cloudy in the first verses. But then he came into the sanctuary of God and he began to see things quite differently. Quite differently. It's only the presence of God that gets one a proper answer to the perplexities of life. But something else happened. This is very important. Verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Yes, the bad guys will have an end. Aesop says, then I saw the whole picture, not just part of it. And this fact changes his envy toward the prosperous sinner. If you go back or, or further on in Psalm, Psalm number 90, turn over there just for a moment, verses 9 and 10. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end. There's that word again, like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. And we fly away. Over to Psalm 92, verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass, and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. Over in Acts chapter 17, as Paul got to the end of his address to the people in Athens, he was able to say this, before they began to mock him. The Lord has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. An important part of the gospel is not simply that Jesus died for our sins, took upon himself the punishment we deserve, not only that we then inherited his perfect righteousness by faith, that was imputed to us, credited to us. 
But remember, the gospel launches us into serving a risen Savior. Christ did not remain in the grave. He was raised from the dead. And not only has he ascended into heaven, but one day he's coming back, as Paul mentions there, a day of judgment. The bad guys are going to be judged eventually. Their time on earth will end. They're not always going to enjoy their wealth and the other things that they focus on, their pleasures in their life. So it's here at Psalm, at verse 17, that the whole psalm changes character. And the true wisdom of this poem becomes evident. Imagine uh, you're walking in a park and you see a piece of paper that flutters across and you pick the paper up and you find out that it's a letter. And you can't help but kind of skimming what the letter is about. And it's a rather interesting letter. And so you're engrossed with this. You're wondering, this person is facing a certain situation. I wonder how they're going to deal with it. Then the letter ends. You don't have the last part of the letter. Thankfully, we have the last part of Psalm 73, not just the first part. We understand that God still is in charge. That they cannot, men cannot escape Him. And so knowing all this, he closes in these last verses with a different perspective on the whole subject, especially what's going to happen to the bad guys. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Imagine that you're sliding down a treacherous slope and you don't stop, you just keep going, going, going. So it is with the outcome of the bad guys. They don't realize that there's an end to all this, and the end is the judgment of Almighty God. They're not as free as they think they are. And often this end, this fall to ruin, comes quickly. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. It might be a car accident. It might be a fast-moving disease, a loss of a job, a financial setback, a divorce, an abandonment by a good friend, a number of things. And suddenly, the ride is over, and just like that, in a moment, it's gone. At this point in a Asaph's mind of verse 21 and 22, he has a brief flashback to the opening verses. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Yes, Lord, I look back now on my attitude I had before I went to the sanctuary, your sanctuary. <laughs> I must admit that uh, I was that way. I was a pretty miserable person, and I should not have done that. Then in verses 23 and 24, Asaph again remembers the sanctuary and its lessons. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. We all need good counsel. We all need good advice. And Asaph could depend upon the word of the Lord to give him that wonderful advice that he needed. His focus needed to be there, not upon what's 
happening, what the bad guys are doing in life. The wisdom of God is sure and perfect. And look what a difference his end is. Not the end of the end of verse 17. Then I discern their end. But here in verse 24, afterwards you will receive me to glory, to heaven, being with God forever and ever, with the saints of God forever and ever. Quite a change in his attitude. Instead of dwelling upon the bad guys, now his focus is upon the Lord and the glory God has promised to him. Verses 25 and 26 are very wonderful, beautiful verses. Listen as I read them or as you follow along with me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I think all of us, including myself, have to admit that we've got a long way to go to really put that into effect. I think intellectually we know that. Intellectually we know there's no one else but God. When it gets right down to it, He's the most important one, more important than our husband, than our wives, than our children, than our parents. The Lord should be number one. And we need to work on that. But Asaph at least recognized who God was that he needed to do that as well. At verse 27, again, he interrupts himself. Asaph says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end, there's that word again, to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And how did Asaph get near to God? Well, he had to do it through trusting in the Christ to come, offering his sacrifices at the temple, acknowledging his sin, putting his trust in that promised Savior, that promised Deliverer that was to come. And so he could say, for me it is good to be near God, to have the Lord God my refuge. He's the one I need to focus upon when I see what's happening with the bad guys always seem to win. Now many questions remain to be answered, even by Asaph. He probably had lots of other questions, other problems. But at least this visit to the sanctuary of God, the presence of God, the awareness of God, enable him to have hope and patience and peace and stability in his life. It's that same kind of trust we need to have through Christ. He is the one that sustains us. He is the one who will come one day to judge the living and the dead. If we're faith, safe, faith in Christ, we dwell in Him, we are in Him, we need not fear that judgment. We're told we may have boldness in the day of judgment to come before the Lord. As Asaph had that wonderful confidence. I hope you have that. I hope as you sit here this morning, your trust is in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your Lord. You have acknowledged your sin previously in the service. You admit that. You're not fighting against that. And as we come to the Lord's table momentarily, you come 
with appreciation for the work that Jesus has done for you. So let us not be discouraged, frustrated at all the bad guys seem to be doing in our world. That's the kind of world we live in. But thankfully, Christ has come and has given us victory and can give us victory over the world, the flesh, and even the devil himself. I'd like to close by reading the first nine verses of Psalm 37, which helps support what Asaph shared with us in Psalm 73. Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Let's pray. Lord, we are encouraged by these words as we live in a world where we can become very discouraged. Help us to look beyond what men are doing and to remember what you are doing directly and indirectly through your servants, through the church, through those who represent us on the mission fields, through a host of works that are being done in your name where evil is being conquered, where your elect are being called to faith, May we be encouraged with these things and look above the things that discourage us. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.